Section 3 of The Beast Jewel of Mars by Lee Brackett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edith Keswick of Southern Ohio. The Beast Jewel of Mars by Lee Brackett. 3. He came to himself, the self that was Captain Burke Winters, in a room that was much like the one he last remembered in Valkis, except that the walls were of a dark green rock and there was no prism. Winters could not remember anything of what had happened since that last room, except that he knew he had had a strong emotional shock. Jill's name was uppermost in his mind. He began to tremble with a deep excitement. He got to his feet, and it was then that he realized he was shackled. Chains ran from cuffs on his wrists to similar cuffs on his ankles, passing through rings on a metal belt around his waist. These constituted his entire clothing. He saw also that there were freshly healed scars on his body. The heavy door was opened for him before he could begin to pound on it. Four tall barbarians their harness magnificent with jewels and wrought metal formed up a guard around him and an officer led the way they did not speak to winters and he knew the uselessness of trying to get anything out of them he had not the faintest idea where he was or how he had come there beyond a vague memory of pain and flight that was like something he had dreamed and somewhere during that dream he had seen jill spoken to her he was as certain of that as he was of the weight of his chains. He stumbled because his sight was blurred with tears. Up to then, he had not been sure. He had seen the twisted wreck of her flyer, and while he did not believe it, there was always the chance that she might really be dead and lost to him beyond all hope. Now he knew. She was alive, and if Winters had been alone, he would have wept like a child. Instead, he studied the corridors and the great halls through which the guard took him. From the size and the splendor of them, he knew that he was in a palace, and guessed it might be the one he had seen on the cliffs above Valkis. This was confirmed when he caught a glimpse of the town through a window embrasure. The palace was older than anything he had seen on Mars, except for the buried ruins of Locke in the northern deserts. But this was no ruin. It had grown old and somber beauty. The patterns of the mosaic floors were blurred, the precious stones worn thin as porcelain. The tapestries, preserved by the wonderful Martian formula that had been lost for centuries, like everything else on Mars, had grown frail and brittle, their colors all softened to faint glows, infinitely sad and lovely. Here and there, on the walls or the soaring vault of a roof, were murals, magnificent pageants of lost glory dim as an old man's memory the seas they pictured were deep and blue and the ships were tall and the mail of the warriors was set with gems and the captive queens were beautiful as dusky pearls proud architecture mating beauty with strength showing that strange blend of culture and barbarism that is so typically martian winters reflected on how long ago these stones had been quarried and went on to reflect that at that time civilization had already destroyed itself in a series of atomic wars 
and the proud kings of Balkis were only bandit chieftains in a world that was slipping downward toward the night. They came at length to doors of beaten gold that were more than twice Burke's six-foot height. The Keshi guards who stood there pushed them wide, and Burke saw the throne room. Westering sunlight slanted in from the high embrasures, falling across the pillars and the tessellated floor. The pale light touched vagrant glints from the shields and the weapons of dead kings, warmed the old banners to brief life. Everywhere else in the vast place was a brooding darkness, full of whispers and small, faint echoings. A shaft of cool gold fell directly upon the throne at the far end of the room. The high seat itself was cut from a single block of black basalt, and as Winters approached it, his swinging chains making a loud sound in the silence, he saw that the stone had been already half-shaped by the sea. It was very worn and smooth with the patient sanding of the tides, and where hands had lain on the arm pieces there were deep hollows, and on the basalt step below. An old woman sat upon the throne. She was wrapped in a black cloak, and her hair wound into a sort of white crown on her head, braided with jewels. She stared with half-blind eyes at the earthman, and suddenly she spoke, in sonorous high Martian, a tongue as antique on Mars as Sanskrit is on Earth. Winters could not understand one word of it, but he knew from her tone and expression that she was quite mad. Someone sat in the heavy shadows by her feet, outside the shaft of sunlight, and veiled by it from Winters' sight. He could catch only a vague pallor of ivory-tinted flesh, but for some reason his nerves tingled with premonition. As he neared the high seat, the old woman rose and stretched out her arm toward him, a wrinkled Cassandra crying doom upon his head. The wild echoes of her voice rolled from the vaulted roof, and her eyes were full of a blazing hate. The guards set the butts of their spears into his back so that he was thrown face down before the basalt step. A low, sweet, mocking laugh came out of the shadows, and he felt the pressure of a little sandaled foot on his neck. He knew the voice that said, Greetings, Captain Winters. The throne of Valkis welcomes you. The foot was withdrawn from his neck. He rose. The old woman had fallen back onto the throne. She was intoning what sounded like a church litany, and her upturned face had an exultant look. The remembered voice said out of the dimness, My mother is repeating the coronation rites. Presently she will demand the year's tributes from the outer islands and the coastal tribes. Time and reality do not bother her, and it pleases her to play at being queen. Therefore, as you see, I, fond, rule Valkis from the shadow of the throne. Sometimes, Winter said, you must come into the light. Yes. A soft, quick rustle, and she was standing there in the shaft of sunlight. Her hair was the color of night after moonset, intricately coiled. She was dressed in the old, arrogant fashion of the bandit kingdoms, the long, full skirt slit to the waist at the sides, so that her thighs showed when she moved, the wide jeweled girdle, collar of golden plaques. Her small, high breasts were bare and lovely, her body slender with a cat-like grace. 
her face was as he remembered it proud and golden-eyed a mouth like a red fruit that mingled honey and poison a lazy slumbrous power behind that beauty the fascination of all things that are at once beautiful and deadly she looked at winters and smiled so at last you have reached the end of your search he looked down at his chains and his nakedness a strange way to reach it i paid corhall well for this privilege he gave her a searching glance do you rule shanga as well as valkis if so you're not very courteous to your guests on the contrary i treat them very well as you shall see her golden eyes taunted him but you didn't come here to practice shanga captain winters why else would i come to find jill leland he was not really surprised subconsciously he had known that she knew but he managed a look of blank amazement jill leland is dead was she when you saw her in the garden and spoke to her fond laughed do you think we're such fools everyone who comes to the hall of shanga in the trade cities is carefully checked and examined we were particularly careful with you captain winters because psychologically you were the wrong type to be drawn to shanga men like you are too strong to need escape you knew of course that your fiance had taken up the practice you didn't like it and tried to make her stop poor hall said that she was terribly upset about it on several occasions but jill had gone too far to stop she begged to be allowed the full power the real shanga she helped us plan her supposed death in the sea bottom we would have done that anyway for our own protection since the girl has influential connections and we can't afford to have people hunting for our clients but she wanted you to believe she was dead so that you would forget her she felt she had no right to marry you that she would ruin your life doesn't that touch you captain winters doesn't that bring tears to your eyes it brought more than that to winters it brought an overpowering urge to take this lovely she-devil between his hands and break her and then stamp the pieces into the earth his chains made one harsh jangling sound and then the spears came up and touched his flesh with sharp red kisses he stood still and said why have you done this is it for money or for hate for both earth man and for something more important than either of them her lips curved in brief amusement besides i've done nothing to your people i built the halls of shanga yes but the men and women of earth degrade themselves of their own free will come here she motioned him to follow her to the window as she crossed the vast room she said you have seen a part of the palace earth credits have rebuilt and restored the house of my fathers the credits of aplings who wish to return to their normal state because the civilization they have forced on themselves is too much for them look out there earth money has done that too winters looked upon a sight that had almost vanished from the face of mars a garden the varied and jewel-bright garden that would have belonged with a palace like this broad lawns of bronze-green turf, formal plantings, statuary. 
For some reason he could not quite remember, that garden gave Burke Winters a cold, shuddering chill. But the garden itself was only part of what he saw, a small part. Beneath the window the ground sloped away into a vast bowl-shaped depression, perhaps a quarter of a mile away, and Winters looked down into an amphitheater. Ruined as it was, it was still magnificent, with tiers of seats rising like steps of hewn stone from the inner walls. He thought of how it must have looked when the games were held in the old days, with all of those thousands of places filled. Now, in the arena, there was another garden. A wild and tangled garden, closed in by the high protective walls that had kept the beasts from the spectators. There were trees in it and open spaces, and he could make out moving forms among the shadows. Strange forms. He could not see them clearly for the distance and the slanting light, but a chill pang struck through him anyway, a cold breath of foreboding. In the center of the arena was a lake, not a large one and probably not deep, but there were creatures splashing in it and he caught the faint echo of a reptilian scream, an echo he had heard before. Fond was looking outward to the amphitheater with an odd, slow smile. Winters saw that there were people already in the lower tiers of the seats, and more of them gathering. "'What is this thing?' he asked her, "'that is more important than money or your hatred for the men of Earth.' All the ancient pride of her race and house flashed out in her eyes as she answered him. He forgot his loathing of her for a moment in his respect for her deep sincerity. She said only one word. "'Mars!' The old woman heard her and cried out from the throne. Then she flung the corner of her black mantle over her head and was silent. Mars, said Fond quietly, the world that could not even die in decency and honor because the carrion birds came flying to pick its bones and the greedy rats struck away the last of its blood and pride. Winter said, I don't understand. What has Shanga to do with Mars? You'll see. She turned on him suddenly. You challenged Shanga, Earthman, just as your people have challenged Mars. We'll find out which is stronger. She motioned to the officer of the guard, who went away. Then she said to Winters, You wanted your girl back. You were willing to go through the fire of Shanga for her, though you abhorred it. You were willing to risk your identity, though the changes of the ray which, after a while, Earthman, never go away. And all for Jill Leland. Do you still want her back? Yes. You're sure of that? Yes. Very well. Fond glanced over his shoulder and nodded. There she is. For a long moment, Burke Winters did not turn around. Fond moved away a little watching with a cruel, amused interest. Winter's back stiffened. He turned. She was there, standing in the sunlight, bewildered, frightened, a wild and shining creature out of the dawn of the world with a rope around her neck. The guards were laughing. Winter's thought desperately, she has not changed too much. Back to the primitive, but not yet to the ape. There is a soul in her eyes, still, in the light of reason. Jill, Jill, 
how could you have done this thing? But he understood now how she could have done it. He remembered how bitterly he had quarreled with her over Shanga. He had thought it a stupid and childish thing, far beneath her intelligence and as degrading as any other drug, but he had not understood. He did now, and he was filled with a deadly fear, because he understood so well, because he himself was now numbered among the beasts of Shanga. And beneath his horror, as he looked at the creature that was Jill and yet not Jill, he was aware that in some unholy way he found her more beautiful and more alluring than he ever had before. Stripped of all the shams and the studied unconventions of society, freed of all complexity, her body strong and fleet as a doe's quivering with sensitive life, it would take two of a kind. Dawn woman, dawn man. Strong sinew, strong passion, the guts that cities stole away. Fond said, She can still be saved if you find a way to do it. Then she added shrewdly, Unless you now need someone to save you, Captain Winters. A strong shock of revulsion rocked him, but his eyes still held a strange light. The silver she was coming toward him. Her gaze was fixed upon him. He saw that she was drawn to him and struggling to understand why. She did not speak, and somehow Winter's throat closed on an aching lump so that he too was dumb. The guard who held her rope let her move as she would. She came close to Winters, hesitantly, as an animal does. Then she stopped and looked up into his face. Tears gathered in her wide, dark eyes. Presently she whimpered, very softly, and went down on her knees at his feet. The old woman let out a shrill cackling. Vaughn's eyes were like cups of molten gold. Winters bent over and caught Jill in his arms. He lifted her to her feet and stood holding her to him in a fury of protective, possessive love. He said very softly to Fond, You've seen it all now. Can we go? She nodded. Take them to the Garden of Shanga, she said, and added, It's almost time. The guards took them, Burke Winters and the woman he had lost and found again, out through the great echoing halls of the palace and down the long slope of the lawn to the amphitheater. A barred gate of heavy metal covered the mouth of a tunnel. The guards unlocked it and took off Winter's chains and thrust him inside with Jill. The gate was locked again behind them. Holding Jill tightly by the hand, Winters went down to the tunnel and presently into the arena into the garden of Shanga. He stopped, blinking in the sudden light. Jill's hand tightened on his. She shivered with a tense expectancy, and her head was tilted in an attitude of listening. He had only a moment before the gong sounded, the mellow, sonorous notes that might have been calling some evil priesthood to its dark prayers. Only a moment to glimpse the trees and the shambling anthropoid forms that moved among them, to catch the rank beast taint in the air, to hear the splashing and the hissing screams from the hidden pool. Only a moment to be filled with horror and a sick fear, to deny to himself the reality of this nightmare garden, to wish that he were blind and deaf, or, better than that, dead. In the seats above the protecting wall, the rows of Martian faces looked down. 
They were the faces of men and women who watched the antics of creatures in a zoo, destructive creatures for which they have a personal hatred. Then the gong called out, and Jill leaped away, pulling him by the hand. All over the garden there was a movement of intense silence, and then there rose a devil's chorus of roaring and screaming in voices that were horribly human, and even more horribly not. And close to him, Jill's voice chimed in, saying over and over, Shanga, Shanga. It came to Winters in a flash, then, what Fond had meant about Mars. As Jill pulled him headlong between the trees and across the open grassy spaces, he realized that this garden of Shanga was in fact a zoo, an exhibit, where the people of Mars might come to see what manner of beasts their economic conquerors were. A hot and dire shame rose in him, apeling, running naked through the trees, a slave to the fire of Shanga. He yelled at Jill to stop. She only plunged on harder, so that he had to fight her, setting his heels in the earth, and she turned on him, snarling, saying, Shanga! A great anthropoid male came rushing toward them. He had slipped back beyond speech, but ecstatic noises came out of his throat. Beyond him were others, males, females, and young on the same evolutionary level. Winters and the silver she that was Jill were caught up and carried on in their tribal rush. Winters fought to get away, but it was hopeless. The wild, hairy bodies walled him in. As they approached the center of the garden, they were joined by more and more, all apparently summoned by the sound of the gong. Looking at them, Winter's stomach turned over. This was Walpurgis Night, a festival of blasphemies, and he was trapped in it, inextricably joined to destruction. The ones like Jill, who had only gone a little way as yet, were not so bad. They were human. Winters knew that he himself had been like that, and he felt no particular horror of them. But there were others, back through all the stages of the primitive, beyond the Neanderthal, beyond the Pithecampus erectus, beyond the missing link, back to the common ancestor. Shapeless, shambling, hairy brutes, deformed skulls and little red cunning eyes, bared teeth grinning yellow, things that even the anthropologists had never seen or dreamed of, things that were not human or ape or any form of life that had ever been classified. All the dark secrets of Terran evolution were laid bare in this garden for the Martians to see. It even made Winters, the Earthman, flinch to think that bodies like that had given ultimate birth to him. What respect could the Martians have for such a race that was still so close to its beginnings? But he was to see more, much more, of those beginnings. The gong struck a last booming summons. The tide of bowed, hairy shoulders and flat brows and ugly things that went on all fours swept Winters and Jill out into the clearing at the center, where from the palace window he had seen the lake. A strong, musky reek hung in the air. It had the same sickly taint that a snake house does, and Winters saw that the lake was agitated by the creatures who lived there and who were swarming out to answer the gong back to the common ancestor and beyond, beyond the mammal, back to the gill and the scale, to the egg laid in the warm mud, to the hissing, squirming, utterly, loathingly ultimate. 
Jill panted, Shanga, Shanga. Looking up, and Winters felt a darkness swimming in his brain. A cold, wet thing slithered between his legs, and he swayed, retching. The surface of the lake rippled, but he could not look. He could not. Grasping Jill, he tried to batter his way through the crowd, but it was hopeless. He was caught, trapped. Looking up, he saw the prisms that were set high overhead on long booms. He saw them start to glow with the remembered flame. He had reached the end now. The end of his search for Jill Leland. The end of everything. The first sweet, deadly thrill of the ray touched his flesh. He felt the wakening hunger in him, the deep lust, the stirring of the beast that lay so close under his own skin. He thought of the lake and wondered how it would be to lie in its wetness, breathing through the gill slits that had once opened in his own flesh when he was an embryo in his mother's womb. Because that is where I shall be, he thought, in the lake, Jill and I. And beyond the lake, what, the amoeba? And then... He saw the royal box, whence the kings of Valkis had watched the gladiators and the flowing blood. Fond sat there now. She leaned her slender elbows on the stone and watched, and it seemed to Winters that even at this distance he could see the smile and the scorn in her golden eyes. Poor Hall sat beside her, and the old woman, a muffled shape of black. The fires of Shanga burned and brightened. There was a silence on the clearing now. The sounds that came, the moanings and the little whimpers, did not touch that silence. They only made it deeper. The warm glints danced on the upturned faces, glowed in the staring eyes. Each scaled or shaggy body bore a nimbus of beauty. He saw Jill standing there, reaching up toward the twin suns, a slim shaft of silver flame. The madness already in his blood, muscle and sinew taut with it, arcing, curving, brain clouding with a bright soft veil, forgetfulness, release. Jill and Burke, dawn man and dawn woman, happy while they lived, done with everything but their own love, their own satisfaction. Why not? They were both in it now, both marked with the same stamp. Then he heard the laughter and the jeering of the Martians, who were gathered to watch the shame of his world. He tore his gaze away from the wicked light and looked again into the face of Fonda Valkis, and then at Cor Hall, and the thousand other faces, and a bleak and terrible expression came into his eyes. The ranks of the crowd had broken. The beast shapes lay upon the turf, writhing in the ecstasy of Shanga. Jill was on her hands and knees. Winters felt the strength going out of him, the lovely pain, the beautiful, wild, exultant pain. He grasped Jill and began to drag her back toward the trees, out of the circle of light. She did not want to go. She screamed and tore at his face with her nails and kicked him, and he struck her. After that, she lay limp in his arms. He kept on, stumbling over the twitching bodies, falling, crawling at last on his hands and knees. Only one thing kept him going on. Only one thing made him undergo the tortures of the damned, fighting Shanga. That thing was the scornful, smiling face of Fond. He was safe, beyond the circle. 
He dragged the girl further into the shrubbery and turned his back on the clearing because he wanted more than any drug addict could conceive of wanting to go back into the light, and he dared not look at it. Instead, he pulled himself erect and faced the royal box. It was only pride that kept him standing. He looked straight into the distant eyes of Fond, and her clear, silvery voice carried to him. You will go back to the fire of Shanga, Earthman. Tomorrow or the day after, you will go. Complete assurance there, as one is sure of the rising of the sun. Burke Winters did not answer. He stood a moment longer, his gaze level with Fawn's. Then even pride failed. He fell and lay still. The last conscious thought of his mind was that Bond and Mars together had challenged Earth, and that it was no longer merely a matter of saving a girl from destruction. End of section three.